Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Good morning, good morning. It's uh, time to rise and shine. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. What time is it? That depends on what kind of clock you're looking at and whether or not your clock is running. Well, this morning, um, the doomsday clock people have announced that the clock is stuck. That's actually good news. The doomsday clock is stuck at 90 seconds to, you know, the expiration of all things. The doomsday clock is a, is a tick-tock clock that winds down, right? Uh, it was created during the Cold War when we developed the ability to destroy life on planet Earth as we know it with nuclear weapons. So the doomsday clock continues to serve as a kind of measurement of global safety or the risk of global annihilation. Um, and so, you know, when the doomsday clock people make an announcement, it's it's um it's like a pseudo event. It's like Groundhog Day. It's not actually a real thing. Um, doesn't actually matter if Puxitani Phil sees his shadow or not, but we make news about it. And so I feel a little bit that way about the announcement of the doomsday clock. However, it does provide for us as Christians um an entry point into a conversation with with people who um, are, are living with some measure of very real fear about the end of the world as we know it. Like thinking about the end of the world can be scary, for, particularly for people who are living with no hope beyond the here and now. So I want you to consider, um, you know, the doomsday clock, uh, the doomsday clock announcement just made um, – yesterday. Here's what the doomsday clock people are saying. Uh, It's stuck at 90 seconds. So that's good. That's good. But, you know, in a clock that is um, keeping keeping, uh, track to a countdown to midnight, 90 seconds is just not very far off. Um, You and I also know this is not actually the clock that is counting down to Again, the end of the world as we know it. Like that timeline, that clock is one known only to God. In the fullness of time, he's going to bring it all um, to an end in order that it can all have a new beginning. So the experts who maintain the quote-unquote doomsday clock um, said that uh, humanity is still as close to global catastrophe. Um, They believe that would include uh, nuclear war. Um, that climate change would be a part of that, that artificial intelligence is very now likely to play a role. And so on this symbolic clock, um, they have determined that, you know, same 90 seconds to midnight as last year. But that is the closest to midnight that the clock has ever been. So again, um, Jesus is really clear. We don't know the hour. We don't know the hour. 
But he was also equally clear that we are to live as people prepared at every hour for his return. Jesus is coming again. We don't just say it in the Apostles' Creed, like it is the true truth. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. There, there will be an end to life on earth as we know it. And then there will be a new beginning, a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus talks about it. The prophets foretold it. Um, John saw it in a vision. We have it in the book of Revelation. We don't know when, but it is not a question of if. There's no if here. There will be a when. We just don't know when that when will be. There will be an end. It has been known from the beginning. And history is following something called a redemptive arc. And that redemptive arc is known only to God in terms of where it ends in order that it might begin again. So that means the clock's always ticking. The clock is not stuck. Um, And it's not winding down to doomsday so much as it's winding up toward the fulfillment of the reign of Christ. Think about that. Do you think of the end of life on earth as we know it as a doomsday scenario? Or do you see the clock winding up toward the fulfillment of the reign of Christ, toward the day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Like, I await that day. I can hardly wait for that day. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And yes, between here and there, there's a lot of terrible terrain, but there's also the possibility of people coming to faith in Christ, of God moving hearts and minds, that more and more people would bend the knee before the day, that upon Christ's return, there would be more and more people exalting him as Savior and Lord, recognizing him upon his return. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus and stand and shout in victory. Amen? So instead of worrying about the future, what does it look like to use the day we have to not only ready ourselves, but to invite others to get ready? I mean, who knows? Maybe today is the day. If today is the day, who needs to be moved? Who needs to be moved from a life they have built on seeking sinking sand to a life built in Christ, built on Christ, built for Christ, built toward Christ? Doomsday clock, end of the world as we know it, yeah. And the reality of the fullness of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Which one of those realities are you focusing on today? Between here and heaven on earth, there's going to be a lot of death and destruction. Our part as Christians in the world is to live each day as if this is the day of the Lord's return. Are you ready for that? It's time for every Christian to wake up to the reality that people are living with a lot of uncertainty and fear, and that we know the one who knows the end from the beginning. The end of the world can be scary if your only hope is in the here and now. So know this, God's plan extends far beyond the end of the world as we know it. His kingdom is eternal, and Christ is coming again. In other news, Oppenheimer, the movie about the Manhattan Project that resulted in the building of the world's first nuclear weapon and the group who actually then um, started the Doomsday Clock and still manage it, 
uh, that group um, maintains the doomsday clock today. Well, we're going to pick up um, the conversation about the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer next with our science writer and bioethicist, Heather Zeiger. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. And the Oscar goes to, well, Heather Zeiger is joining us. She is a science writer. She serves with the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Heather, do you think Oppenheimer is going to get an Oscar? Yeah, I do. It was uh, it was a good film. Um, and, you know, for your listeners, there are a couple of scenes in there. So it's not... Um a film for children, but it was a really good film. Christopher Nolan did a good job of kind of painting this picture of some of the tensions that went on with the Manhattan Project. And he does it, Christopher Nolan films, he does it in his typical kind of artsy way where he plays with timelines a little bit. So you're kind of coming in in the middle of action and then looking back and looking forward. So um, it I think it's going to win an Oscar. I thought Celia Murphy, who played the lead of Robert Oppenheimer, did a brilliant job. I know Christopher Nolan wrote the script with him in mind, and it really it really shows. He did a fantastic job on that. I think that I appreciated um, the the effort for the movie to be as historically accurate as possible. They're not glorifying, you know, the creation of uh, of the bomb. They present the moral quandary that was faced by Robert Oppenheimer and other physicists on the Manhattan Project. I thought they they handled that fairly well. Um, there was a sobriety to the whole thing, and I would agree with you. You know, it's not for kids, but um, I do hope um, I, I do hope that it wins an Academy Award because I think that then more people will see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you that it really it really brought out the tension and um, the reserve reservations that many of those scientists had, uh, including the fact that, you know, some of them were very hesitant about uh, dropping two bombs instead of one and dropping them on the Japanese when they had entered this project thinking that they were going to uh, attack the Nazis. So there's just, uh, as an ethicist and as a chemist, Carmen, this, I'm a little obsessive about the Manhattan Project. And I think uh, I can't, I can't put myself in the place of being at the end of a second world war and trying to decide now how best do we handle this? Um, You know, looking back, I'm like, oh man, development of the atomic bomb and dropping on two uh, locations in Japan. That sounds horrible, but I don't know, I, you know, how do you put yourself in those, in that place and in the place of the scientists? Decision-making um, in times of war is it, it horribly complicated. We're watching it, you know, play out in real time, both in Ukraine and, um, and in the Gaza Strip and in Israel. Um, I do think that we imagine we imagine somehow that um, war war can be tidy and clean, um, that only um, only bad guys get killed. There's no collateral damage there. You know, there are no innocent um, losses of life. And that's just not true. One of the things that I think um, is brought to the fore um, in this conversation is is that we today imagine that we can tell other people how to restrain themselves and their weaponry when I don't think anybody could have told us at the end of World War II um, that restraint was the way forward. Too many people were were dying. Too many people were imprisoned. 
it was time to bring it to an end. And I'm not justifying the use of the atomic bombs, um, but I am saying that those decisions are complicated and complex, and we're arrogant if we imagine that we are in a position to tell other people what to do with the weapons they have. And a lot of people now have atomic weapons. Mm-hmm. They do. And that's that's one of the big ethics questions here is, um, did the Manhattan Project start? Well, I, I guess it started the atomic kind of arms race, if you will. But then um, and so some people say, well, did this open this this uh, this, this horrible thing, this um, doomsday clock, you mentioned the doomsday clock, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is the, is the publication that was started by Oppenheimer afterwards because he wrestled with how he had contributed with, to this. And um, did we open an arms race? Was that inevitable? Um, so many of those types of questions where you're right, like as an ethicist, it's, it's hard for me to to make it a, such a black and white decision as far as like, well, in a time of war, what would you have done? I think about, mm-hmm. uh, I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, conspiring to assassinate Hitler. Now, as a Christian, I can sit here so many years later and say, wow, you know, you should not, you should not kill the uh, governing authorities. You know, in hindsight, I'm like, you know, why this, this guy did this? And yet, you know, you read his biographies and stuff and you think about, well, what if this was your country? What if you were seeing your loved ones uh, who and he, he was related to, uh, I think, Jew, people of Jewish background? Mm-hmm. And what would you have done? And, uh, you know, it, it, it's much more difficult when you put yourself in the place of that person in that time and place that it, um, you know, yes, of course, I can look back and say, well, you should not you should not kill somebody. You should not, uh, you know. Even even Hitler in that place, you know, we have biblical precedent for respecting governing authorities. And yet you you read about that situation and you're like, would I would I would I be taking such a moral high ground as I am now? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it's complex. And that's one of the reasons that you know, I want to surface it and want to talk about it. I think these are the kinds of conversations that we have to be having, not just, you know, sort of like with God in the in the privacy of our own prayer closet. But as we watch war from afar, um, as we recognize that there are real people who are really going to die today um, because Russia's going to continue to shoot at Ukraine um, and Ukraine's going to continue to fire back and Israel and Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, um, Iran, Pakistan, everybody's shooting at each other. And so when we talk about um, war and we talk about the reality of it, like we are living in the midst of um, of a time <clears throat> when war is real. And um, many of the bad actors in the world um, are nuclear armed. And so, again, this isn't uh, as you're listening right now, I'm not trying to scare you, but I do think that we have to be people of sober judgment. We have to be awake. We have to be aware and we have to recognize that things have a beginning and that once something is started, um, like like atomic uh, power and then ultimately an atomic bomb, um, that, that has a storyline that continues. Um, and we now find ourselves as the moral agents in this generation, um, and, and we need to be aware of and able to talk about um, these realities. So... Heather, as always, thank you for helping us do that. Let's take a very, very brief break. When we come back, 
Um, you uh, you raised my attention to a study that shows that kids actually do learn better on paper than on screens. And so I think that that is a helpful thing for us to be focused on. Um, so do you spend uh, time with your kids, actual paper, actual pens and pencils? Are they reading actual books? Or are we letting them learn from whatever's coming across the screen? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. What are some of the things that you find hard to believe? Do you find it hard to believe that God hears you? Do you find it hard to believe that God loves you? Do you find it hard to believe that right now God knows how many hairs there are on your head and how many are on your hairbrush? Like, do you sometimes find it hard to believe that God cares about you and the stuff going on in your life right now? My friend Susie Larson wants you to be reminded every single day, every single day, that God is good. Would you like to wake up to the goodness of God? Just text the word good to 877-933-2484. Every single day, you'll get encouraging text messages, prayers, and devotions from Susie Larson right on your phone. Just text the word good to 877-933-2484. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. When's the last time you, you know, you like took a reading test? Like how many words can you read per minute or how many pages in a particular amount of time? At what level can you read? What's the reading level of you and your neighbors? It used to be like sixth grade reading level. We could talk about reading. We could talk about writing and speaking at a sixth grade reading level. Um, yeah, that's um, that's dropping precipitously in the United States of America. Heather Zeiger is here with us. She's a science writer. Heather, what um, what what are we learning from the Department of Education's most recent survey about um, the collapse of reading scores among American youth? Sure. Yeah. What what this recent survey and these uh, there's a recent study. So the recent survey is showing that American youth are having have worse reading comprehension than they did 10 years ago and even worse than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. So reading comprehension is diminishing. And a lot of times people want to blame the pandemic, but this is something that was going on before the pandemic. So uh, this is not this is not just something that is in the last four years. And. Studies have continued to show. So this is, uh, I'm going to tell you, Carmen, um, my husband has taught middle school and uh, high school for uh, almost 20 years. And um, this is one of those studies we put in the category of science is telling us what we kind of already know. Mm. Okay, so this is a study that is that looked at children ages 10 to 12 years old. And that is important that they looked at children at that age, because around fourth grade is when children transition from learning to read to reading to learn. So they transition from learning to read to then reading to learn. So this is ages 10 to 12. And so there was a study done where they uh, connected all these electrodes to to their heads. And uh, you can do little brain scans with that. And they also did word association tests afterwards. And they had children read original text. Some of them read them on screens and some of them read them on paper. Then they tested them. And it turns out the kids who read on paper had significantly better comprehension than children who read on screens. So we kind of 
already know this, if you have kids that are around that age, you kind of know that like when they're on screens, they're getting distracted or you know this as if you've experienced this, I certainly have, where I will read an article on a screen and I scroll, I skim it much more than I do on paper. I will remember a book that I read on paper much more easily than on a screen. Um, Nicholas Carr wrote about this in his article in The Atlantic, Is Google Making a Stupid? And his subsequent subsequent book, The Shallows. Um, So now Mm. they're looking at children during this very pivotal time where they're going, they're transitioning in how they read and how they comprehend. So this is really important for school districts and teachers uh, to know. So many school districts are adopting, you know, technology, um, uh, dual Mm. classrooms or flipped classrooms, or they want Chromebooks in each classroom. And it turns out that those really aren't helping uh, kids learn, especially during this pivotal age. And so we need to, we need to let go of some of that tech optimism that says, Hey, if we just throw technology, it's a problem. It will solve things. And sometimes the less efficient thing, like reading on paper, making copies of papers. So everyone has a ability to read it on, read an article on paper actually might be better. That's good. The analog approach would be another way to say that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, okay. So we have, um, another, Another study here, um, cancer is striking more young people and doctors are, you know, alarmed, but they're also a little bit baffled. What, um, What do we need to know about this? Yeah, so the overall incidence of cancer is going down in in the broader population, especially people over 50. But what is happening is the incidence of cancer under 50 and people under 50 is increasing with the largest increase in people in their 30s. And Carmen, this is interesting because that's too young for behavior-based cancers. So most of these Mm. cancers are gastrointestinal cancers like colon, pancreatic appendix, stomach cancer, as well as uterine. And it's happening in healthy athletic people, not just people with sedentary life or lifestyle. I will tell you, I personally was one of those people. I was diagnosed with appendix cancer when I was 39 and I was a relatively, and still am a relatively healthy, you know, athletic person who did not have any of the risk factors. That's crazy. Okay. So what are they attributing it to? What are they thinking? So this is the thing. Whenever you correct for any number of factors, it is still that people are unsure what is causing it. So some, some, some of the colon cancers, some of these other cancers could be due to sedentary lifestyle. But again, you're also seeing some of these gastrointestinal cancers in healthy athletic people. So they're saying, yes, there's some sort of environmental factor or mm. something that maybe as children they are exposed to or some issue, uh, some sort of genetic issue. But honestly, they're still trying to figure out what is causing this increase in, in the incidence of young age cancers. Wow. Um, I mean, certainly true in my family. Um, my nephew, Larry, um, you know, had leukemia when he was a child and, you know, thankful now that he is cancer free. But yeah, this is um, this this is happening. Um, and there is uh, there is an increasing incidence of it. Um, and we ought to be paying attention. So, Heather, uh, thank you, as always, for joining us. We We love our conversations with you. We appreciate how God has wired you with a mind for science and a heart for him. Thanks, Carmen. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. So thank you to those of you who continue to text in your 
your particular country of particular concern? Is there a place in the world um, that God has knit into your heart? Um, We've got folks praying for uh, lifting up Tanzania today. Um, We've got uh, Jill, who's got family in in Kiev, and so obviously Ukraine is on her heart and mine. What is your country of particular concern? Um, A friend in the 701 area code says, Nigeria is the target of my prayers these days. More Christians being martyred there than in any other country in the world. My uncle served as a missionary in that area for more than 30 years. What is your country of particular concern? Maybe it is the country where you are now sponsoring um, a child with one child. Um, maybe it is a country where you your people came from, right? Maybe it's a country that you long to visit one day. What is the country of particular concern that God has laid on your heart? Um, would you text me? 877-933-2484. I'd like to, uh, to be praying today with the whole world in my hands, right? So I want you to visualize that. I want you to visualize holding the whole world in your hands. I mean, obviously, God's the one who's got the whole world in his hands, and you and I don't have the capacity for that. But we can uphold particular places in the world and the precious people who live there. We can do that. So you could visualize holding the whole world in your hands. Um, And I don't know, treat it like a prayer ball. Turn it over in your hands. Examine um, the contours of of the land, um, pray for the people on the coastlines, pray for the people in the mountain regions. And depending on what kind of globe you have in your hands, it may or may not have boundary lines between countries, right? So maybe pray for the world both ways. Pray for the world with no boundary lines, no lines of division between nations. And then pray for the reality that we live in, which is a geography of borders and people living on opposite sides of those. Jesus brought down every dividing wall of hostility between us, but that doesn't mean that in a world populated mostly by people who don't know Christ, division doesn't remain. Like, division actually is real. So the dividing lines um, between us as people and peoples are real, and and lots of folks still fighting over all of those. All right, obviously, uh, I am a woman, and I am working. And so when I think about women um, and work, when I think about the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given um, to women, when I think about the callings and opportunities that God has placed on female hearts, um, when I think of the way that God has uh, called us into particular professions, I also recognize that there is a tension that exists because there are things that women uniquely are designed by God to do, um, not least of which is, um, you know, is bearing children. And so in a, in a time, um, in an age, in a generation where lots of women work, it's important to have a conversation about um, the... Uh, the, the stress, um, the question, um, how God could be reflected through women at work, um, the sin and temptations that exist in the workplace, how, um, how we can be grace-filled in terms of the way we work. So all of that uh, is the subject matter of 
Chelsea Sobolik's new book called to Cultivate, A Gospel Vision for Women and Work. But Chelsea also has some really, really fun and special news um, about their own household. So we're going to celebrate the blessing of the gift of a son um, in their home as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Chelsea Sabolik is joining us now, and although we are definitely going to talk about her book um, related to women and work called To Cultivate, we have to start off with a celebration of her growing family. Chelsea, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. I do a little dance. I sing a little song every time you post. Um just read people in who haven't been obsessively following the growth of your family. <laughs> Absolutely. So we uh, returned home at the end of October um, from India, where we adopted our son, Dev. Uh, he's a, the cutest two and a half year old um, in the entire world, but we're settling in as a family of three and it's just, he's great. He's just absolutely wonderful. So we're in the process about three years. And for those who don't know my story, I'm actually adopted internationally as well. So Dev and I uh, both joined our family in the same way. So that's a really, really special thing for both of us to share. But it's been great. He's he's an incredible kid. It's so much fun. And now you're a mom. And that changes everything at some level. Um, so I maybe just for a moment, like reflect on that because being a mom is a big deal. <laughs> it is. You know, when when I got married, I thought that changed everything. But little did I know that a tiny human truly would change every aspect of life um, in the best way. But it's still, I mean, it's still all different and change. And you have to re-figure out almost every aspect of your life. And you know what, I will say it's really caused me to slow down um, and really prioritize what's important because now you truly, I mean, before with a spouse, you can say, hey, I need two hours to finish this, but you, you can't do that with a toddler, you know? So it's really forced me to slow down and really retool my priorities and, and what's important to me and our family. And um, I've had to say no a lot, um, which is a good muscle to develop, but um, I mean, it's changed in the best, the best possible way, but I think really still catching my breath and saying, okay, we're, we're reorienting so much of life and family life and it impacts work life. And, um, but again, to, in, in my life, it's really caused me to slow down and, um, kind of retool some things, which is never a bad thing. So I want to circle back around to this um, at the end of our conversation, but I want to um, honor the fact that you and I have an assignment <clears throat> before us. And that assignment is um, your brand new book called To Cultivate, A Gospel Vision for Women and Work. Um, first of all, like, why do we need this um, and why do we all need this? Absolutely. So I... All of us need a book on work, but women in particular, because um, all of us, the, the majority of us spend the majority of our days working, even if we're not receiving a paycheck for that work. 
stay-at-home moms are working just as hard, probably even harder, harder in many, many harder. cases. No yes, question. yes. No question. Absolutely. Um, then women who are either working outside the home or, you know, maybe um, doing part-time um, in both. So we spend the majority of our days and our lives working. And as Christians and as Christian women, we absolutely need to think about um, what how we approach that, why we're working, all of those things. But I really wrote this book um, because of my own personal experience. Um, I walked through a very difficult professional season. And at the time, there weren't hardly any books on Christian women and work, and certainly none that addressed topics that I was really wrestling with, um, gender discrimination. Um, I have good friends who have experienced racial discrimination in the workplace as Christians. Um, so I really wanted to tackle some hard topics, um, but everything is rooted in scripture and rooted in um, what God says about women and work, why we work, our ultimate purpose of work, all those kinds of things. So what did you discover along the way in terms of how women working and how women in the workplace, like are there things that are different for us as women than our male counterparts as Christians in the workplace? Absolutely. I think one of the, the biggest differences, well, I'll start with what scripture says and then kind of go to there. Um, work predates the fall. We see this in the very first page of Genesis. Um, God creates the world. He creates humanity and gives them the creation mandate. And I think I want to hone in on that particular point because God gave both men <clears throat> and women, he commanded both of them to cultivate um, and subdue the, the earth and exercise dominion over the earth. And of course, to be fruitful and multiply as well. But both of them are given that that charge and that commandment and it has implications for our work. But specifically this, you know, this time and place, there are some pretty significant differences. I think one of the big ones is, I'm kind of navigating this right now. When a woman has a child, whether um, birth or adoption, um, it's it's assumed that the man is going to go back to work. And then it's not necessarily assumed that the, the woman will go back to work or that, that that's kind of a gray area. And I think, unfortunately, one of the the hard things is people have a lot of opinions on that of you absolutely should stay home or um, all these different opinions. And I think this is one of those areas where we need to have a lot of grace with one another um, because the Bible is not prescriptive in, in that. Um, this is one of those, those areas where we can invite wisdom in um, as we're navigating those decisions. And, you know, I talk about in the book, the concept of seasons and seasonality of life and how so few things for women um, especially women, maybe more in a traditional workplace, are um, a straight line like they could be for our male counterparts. You know, we might step back for a season. We might step in for a season. We might juggle being at home and working. There's so many different ways um, that women navigate um, what work outside the home could look like um, that is different from our male counterparts. Um, so I think that's a really big one. I'm walking through this right now, but I know many, many women have, have navigated that as well. Are you a woman? Um, are you married to a woman? Do you have a woman in your life, your mom, your sister, your daughter, who is trying to understand um, her relationship to work? 
called to cultivate a gospel vision for women and work. Um, this is for women with dreams and doubts and concerns. Um, this is for you. And I want um, I want you to have access not only to the book, but to Chelsea. So Chelsea Patterson com. I know that's a lot of letters. And so I am happy to um, send you that link. Just text me 877-933-2484. We're going to continue our conversation with Chelsea in just a moment called to cultivate a gospel vision for women and work. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Maybe you've heard that Faith Radio partners with One Child to offer you the opportunity to sponsor a child living in difficult circumstances in a hard place. Well, when you sponsor a child supplying for their needs, you change a life. And when you change the life of one child, you change the world. Your one child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that God's got special plans for their life. Your one child gets help with school and is taught skills like leadership and how to even overcome poverty. Your one child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that can be life-saving. You might not be able to change the world, but you can, in fact, change the life of one child. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Chelsea Patterson Sabolik is um, what I would describe as a person who has been advocating from a Christian pro-life position for whole life and full life, for every life and all of life. She has been um, working diligently in Washington, D.C. Um, for a number of years in a number of different environments, some of them more hostile than others in terms of um uh, of her lived experience. She's also a wife and now a mom. And her book, Called to Cultivate a Gospel Vision for Women and Work, um, takes all of that into account. Um, and obviously, God created us male and female and gave us each other. Um, but he also gave us together to the stewardship of his creation, to the cultivation of culture itself, which means we work um, and we all have work to do. Some of it is work inside the home. Some of it is work um, outside the home. And so we're going to continue our conversation with Chelsea about all of that. Chelsea, we have Mary on the text line. Mary is um, a single adoptive mom. Um, and I have assured her that um, you are tender to that reality. You you really um, approach this conversation, not just as a professional woman, but as a person who has been advocating for kids your whole career. I do. And this is, I mean, again, adoption is part of my, my very personal story, how we built our family, but I've worked in child welfare policy and advocacy in some capacity for basically my whole career. Um, so this, this issue is very tender to me and, um, it's it's something I'm going to care about and advocate for um, in some capacity for the rest of my days. And so when we're talking about women and work, we are talking about reality. Um, and some women have to work outside the home in order to provide for the children who are in that home. Um, others have the, the privilege of living um, in what I believe is God's very good design, which is the context of an you know, intact family 
where there is a father present and there is a mother present and they work collaboratively both inside the home and outside the home for everybody's flourishing. Um, Talk with us about how we as women reflect God's nature when we work. Mm, I love this question. Um, Obviously, like I said a few minutes ago, work predates the fall. God created humanity. We know in Genesis 3, um, sin has marred everything. Um, and But that doesn't mean that humanity does not still reflect the image of God. And one of the ways that humans um, do image God is by working. Um, you know, we are inherently valuable, um, not based on anything we do um, or our ability, but based on who we are. We are, we are God's image bearers. But one of the ways we do that is is working. God God is a working God and calls um calls his people to work. And again, we know sin um has marred that and some people don't have the ability to to work or um work might look different um for different people, but um it is one of the ways through which we um show the world and tell the world um about who God is and what he cares about. And, you know, I talk in the book um, to the great purposes um, of our work are, it's one of the ways that we love God. Um, And work is one of the ways through which we love our neighbor. Um, And so when we're working with excellence, when we're striving to care about our communities and our families and our churches through our work, um, my, our, our goal is that we, in those um, in those roles, are ambassadors of Christ. So that when we walk into, you know, maybe we are a coffee barista at our local coffee shop, or we're stocking shelves at Walmart, or we're a CEO in a corner office, whatever that looks like for us, or we're a stay-at-home mom who is raising little people. That when people see how we interact with one another, how how we approach our work, we're not lazy, we're not slothful. Um, that they will be curious about the God that we serve, that everything we do, the words we say, the actions we take, tell others about who God is. And so it's like, it's an enormous responsibility, but such a beautiful one because throughout scripture, God calls us to be faithful ambassadors, to be stewards of what we've been entrusted with. Nothing on in our lives is truly ours. We, we ought to live with open hands, knowing that everything is ultimately the Lord's. And so um, everything we do should point to the Lord in, in, our, in our work, in our lives, in, in all of that. We have a, um, a friend on the text line from, uh, from Connecticut who says, um, as a mother of three sons and a grandmother now of seven, I can honestly say being a parent is the most rewarding and difficult job at the same time. And I'm a retired nurse she says, I now babysit for three of my granddaughters, and I'm trying to encourage their parents to slow down and laugh more mm. with their children. Um, this stage, when they're little um, and they still want to spend time with mommy and daddy, trust me, it's short. <laughs> mm. Time went so fast. I wish I had relaxed and slowed down um, and definitely wish I had laughed more when mine were little. So, um, yeah, I think that <clears throat> the resonance here with the stages of life or the seasons of life, the recognition that in this grandmother's case, you know, she she was a working person in the way that we think about a working person. She was a nurse, but she was also a working person at home um, who had who had children um, and raised them. And it does go so fast. 
um, it it goes fast. I mean, even in in the midst of it, it doesn't it, it doesn't seem like it's going fast, but um, but it does. They grow up fast, and so um, I appreciate the way that you are seeking to faithfully navigate all of that in your own life, Chelsea. That um, you recognize that um, your son changes the rhythm of life. He just does. Mm-hmm. He changes the rhythm of life and he will change um, how you work and when you work and where you work. And um, my guess is he won't change why you work. Let's talk about that for just a moment, because the motivation um, to work can't just be it cannot just be to make money. Mm-mm, absolutely not. <laughs> Work's too difficult for that. That's right. You know, it's after, just too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's too hard. As Christians, there's so much more. Um, but uh, I've read about this in the book. I was working for someone and they ended up resigning and I, I lost my job. And after that, I was in a job that I despised. I hated this job. Um, and I really wrestled with a lot of those questions of, does God care about the work I do? I do in a job that I just, I mean, it really was that job for me that I just, when I started, it was just for a paycheck. Um, how do I, how, I was thinking, how do I honor the Lord in jobs I don't, I don't like? Um, kind of undergirding all of those questions I was thinking through was how does God redeem work? I've been in jobs and I'm thankfully in one now that I, I adore. I love my, my job. But I've, again, I've been in jobs where I just, I've cried every day going to work. Um and I think as Christians, kind of recalibrating and, and recasting our vision, you know, whether it's a season of life that we're in that's just very difficult, you know, personally or professionally, our entire lives are, to steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction, faithfully co-laboring with Christ. Um, so we're not in that hard season alone. We're, Christ is always with us. But we've read the end of the story. We know that life is so much more than what we can see and feel and touch. Um, and so reimagining and recasting um, our work has um, given people on earth um, foretastes of eternity. And one of the, one of the things that I loved when I was studying the concept of, of work is um, the Hebrew word used in Genesis two to, to talk about work um, actually means, um, it simultaneously means work, worship, and service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so work is one of the ways through which we worship God. And listen, we've read scripture. We have seen um, saints who were in challenging situations for much longer than they wanted to be. Um, and if someone's in a really difficult professional season, maybe they're in a job where it just feels like you're getting a paycheck. Again, I've been there we can still worship God in those moments. We can ch- still choose to show up and have a good attitude. We can have intentional conversations over lunch with our, our coworkers. Um, we can worship God in that. And then the second thing that I love about work, um, Martin Luther once said that God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor sure does. And mm-hmm. we can reimagine our work um, the the job I, I didn't enjoy, I was an executive assistant. So my, my job really was to help my bosses flourish. And mm-hmm. um, my act of service to love my neighbor in that job was scheduling meetings and doing expense reports. And in the moment, it can feel very um, meaningless is too strong of a word. It can just feel very monotonous. And how am I moving the ball forward? Or 
Um, but it, it did matter to my boss who um, had hired me for that job and needed that that task done. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, we think about when we're sending an email, all the people in the world <sighs> had to come together for that one moment to help us love we our neighbor to... through sending an email. Chelsea, we're going to be out of time in 10 seconds, and I don't want to run out of time to say thank you and bless you. So thank you and bless you, my friend. Thank you. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.